Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church.
here's the deal about these Christmas movies, and, and you probably love, love one the most that I didn't even mention. But all these movies have some similarities in their story arc. There is some sort of, of a dysfunctional relationship. There are some unmet expectations. And there's a sense of hopelessness in, in, in these characters. Whether it's George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, who is facing financial ruin and he's about to lose his business and he's literally giving people money out of his own pocket to keep them fluid even though he knows it's going to ruin him. Or maybe it's Ralphie Parker, who all he wants is that Red Ryder BB gun and everybody keeps telling him, gun, shoot your eye out. Maybe it's Buddy the Elf leaving the North Pole to go find his real dad only to find his real dad and discover that his real dad's a real jerk. Hopelessness. Challenges to relationships unmet expectations. It's a theme that runs through all of these stories. And as we watch these movies again this year, one thing I want you to notice, and I think this is what makes them so great and why we watch them a year again and again, and even though we're so familiar with them, we watch them again and again. As you watch these characters, these characters that we have come to know and to love, we watch them in their relational challenges. We watch them dealing with their unmet expectations. We watch them in a, in a sense of, of complete and utter hopelessness we realize that in one way or another, all of us have experienced those same moments. That's why we relate so well to these characters. We all know what it's like to have a broken relationship. We all know what it's like to, to, to be dealing with unmet expectations. I think we've all felt that sense of hopelessness, maybe even this week. And the reason that we love these movies, these stories, so much is that by the end of the movie, there's a resolution. There's a happy ending. The relationship gets restored. The expectations not only get met, they are often exceeded. Somehow, hope returns. And these films, even just for a moment at Christmas time, these films make us think that maybe, just maybe, we could somehow experience that too. Last week we began our Christmas message series in this welcome home environment that we're doing, and we're talking this year about Christmas trees. Christmas trees are a big deal this time of year, kind of the centerpiece of our homes and our decorations. Last week I told you that trees play a really big role in the Bible as well. Trees kind of book in the Bible, both symbolically, prominently. They, they kind of book in the Bible. In, in Genesis, God plants a tree in the middle of a garden. In Revelation, the other end of the Bible, God plants a tree in the middle of the city of heaven. And so there's these trees standing symbolically uh, on both ends of Scripture. All throughout, uh, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, trees are used as symbols of connectedness. Trees are, are used as symbols of growth. Trees are used as, uh, as symbols of stability, of strength. Trees are used even as symbols of hope. And so when we come to the first chapter of the book of Matthew, which is kind of where we're parking ourselves this Christmas season, in Matthew chapter 1, we find a different kind of tree. It's Jesus' family tree. And it's just a list of names in Matthew chapter 1. It's not really all that interesting. It kind of reads like a phone book. There's nothing in Matthew chapter 1 you're going to go like, that, that's my life verse. I'm going to print that verse on a coffee mug. That, that, that's going to be my verse. There's nothing motivational about reading a bunch of names, many of which are harder to pronounce, which we're going to see in just a minute, many of which we've never heard of, which we're going to see in just a minute. 
So, so before we get into it, let me just take a moment to, to kind of remind you a little bit about how the Bible's set up and why this is here. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call these the Gospels or the biographies of Jesus. What these four books are is an introduction to Jesus, the Messiah. And each one of these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are written by four different individuals with their own perspectives, their own life experiences, and they're bringing that to the table when they write these words, yes, inspired by God, but they're bringing their own point of view to the story of Jesus. And so when they write these biographies, they are just giving us an understanding, their understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And the way that each of these four writers introduce Jesus tells us a whole lot about these four writers, who they were. And so when we come to Christmas, we come to the birth of Christ, the first thing we do when we, when we come to the gospel, we want to read the, the Christmas story, the first thing we do is we start in the book of Luke, Luke's gospel. Luke gives us the most familiar of the Christmas narrative passages. Luke chapter 2 is where we read about Mary and Joseph and a manger and shepherds on a hillside and angels singing glory to God in the highest heaven. Luke chapter 2 is the most familiar. So when we think Christmas and we think scripture, we think Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is the, the, the chapter of scripture that my grandmother read on Christmas Eve every year in the basement of her house with all of us grandkids crammed into this little bitty basement. That's the, the Christmas story as we know it. That's in Luke chapter 2. And it's the most familiar. It's the one you know the best. That's Luke's version of the Christmas story. John... When he writes his biography of Jesus, John goes a little more for the theological side of the birth of Jesus. John's version of Christmas is deep, and it is, I'm going to use this word, it is mysterious. And I love John's version because John, John kind of invites you and I to step into the mystery of God putting on skin and showing up. And he invites us to explore the mystery, even though we may not fully understand. Well, I may not. We'll never fully understand it. John invites us into the mystery. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I'll be honest with you, John's version of the Christmas story is my favorite. I love John's version of the Christmas story because I love the mystery of it. Mark, the, the gospel writer Mark, Mark... Mark's kind of Mr. Bah humbug when it comes to Christmas. He just skips it. Not a thing about the birth of Jesus. He just starts right with Jesus' ministry. That's Mark. He doesn't have a version of the Christmas story. Matthew, that's where we're playing it this, this Christmas season. Matthew, when he tells us his version of the Christmas story, eventually, eventually Matthew gives us some of the narrative that we know when we think about the Christmas story. He mentions Mary and Joseph by name. He mentions Bethlehem. He also is the one who gives us the details about uh, the, the Magi from the East, the, the wise men. He tells us about King Herod and all of that nonsense that went on with King Herod. So Matthew does give us some narrative about, about the birth of Jesus eventually. But that's not where Matthew starts. Matthew begins his version of the Christmas story with this list of names that we started looking at last week in Matthew 1. And if you were here last week, you, you heard me say that it's not surprising that Matthew would begin his introduction, introducing us to Jesus the Messiah. It's not surprising he would begin his introduction, introduction this way, because in the first century Jewish world, your genealogy, your family tree, your lineage was everything. 
It was your driver's license and your birth certificate and your social security card and your background check and your passport all rolled up into one. It was your credibility. It was who you came from. It was who you were. Everything was tied to this genealogy in the first century Jewish world. It was a big, big deal. So it's not surprising at all that Matthew would tell us who Jesus is by giving us some names because Matthew was writing his biography of Jesus to a Jewish audience. He knew the first people who were going to read what he wrote were Jews. And so this would be important to them. That's why he includes it. But what's very surprising about this is that oftentimes when you were trying to give somebody some credibility, you're trying to say this, this is who this person is and why they're important, why we should pay attention to them, why their credibility, it, through the genealogy, oftentimes you would choose to edit out or to eliminate people in the family tree that are just kind of, we don't talk about them. If I can go back to the movie metaphor for a minute, you would edit out Cousin Eddie from, from, from the genealogy. There's the people you didn't want anybody else to know this person was in your family. You didn't want anybody to know you came from, oh yeah, you came from this guy, which is great, but you came from this guy, which that's a little sideways. We don't want that. So you would edit that out of the genealogy in the first century Jewish world. What's surprising is Matthew doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He puts all these wonky people right in the genealogy. And I think I, the, the people that everybody else would have been tempted to exclude, Matthew includes. Let me, let me show you what I mean. There were typically three groups of people that you would not want to have anything to do with, that you would edit out of your genealogy. The first group, sorry ladies, were women. This was a patriarchal society and Ladies, if you weren't connected to a man in some way, you literally you had no rights, you had no status, you had no nothing. You were in a, in a hurting way. And so you would never put women in a genealogy. You would also never put foreigners, outsiders. And here specifically, I mean people who weren't Jews. In the Jewish world, that who your fathers and your forefathers and your ancestors were, were important. You would never include a Gentile, someone who wasn't from the Jewish family. They were out. You'd never put them in the, in, in the family tree. The other ones you would always leave out were the sinners, the notorious sinners, the people who had done something really, really bad. The people, like, when you heard the name, like, ooh, ooh, you're related to him. Oh, oh. You would leave, though, all three of these other people, you would leave out of a first century Jewish genealogy. Because having them in the genealogy would actually discredit the person that you were trying to communicate about. But Matthew includes, get this, Matthew includes all three of these groups and he does it multiple times it's almost as if it's almost as if Matthew does it on purpose it's almost as if Matthew wants us to see all people from all three of these groups of people and he includes all three of these groups multiple times even within the first six verses Last week, as we began this series, we, worked, we, we looked at one of these limbs of Jesus' family tree. We talked at length about this guy named Jacob. Today, I want to look at another one of Jesus' great-great-great-grandfathers, a guy by the name of David. You've probably heard his name. The prophet Isaiah, when he was, was prophesying about the Messiah coming, he invoked David's name, talking about Jesus coming in Isaiah chapter 11. This is hundreds of years, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. Isaiah says this, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. 
That's a really interesting way to put it, isn't it? Out of the stump. A stump is a stump is not necessarily a picture of life, is it? You don't come across a stump when you're out walking in the woods and go, hmm, hello stump, I wonder what's going to grow here. Because there's nothing going to grow there because it's a stump. You don't wonder, what kind of fruit is this stump going to produce? Because that's not a picture of life. You don't water a stump. You don't fertilize a stump. A stump is a picture of something that was, not something that is. A stump is something that is no more. A stump is not a picture of hope. Yet Isaiah chooses to introduce, introduce us to the coming Messiah by saying, out of the stump of David's family, dead, stump, the family tree has been cut off, out of the stump of David's family will come a shoot. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, remember, there's three groups of people that you would never include in a Jewish genealogy, never include in the family tree. Women, outsiders, and sinners. And Matthew includes all three of them. Let me read you the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. Let's see if we can get through this. Again, it's just a list of names. It's a phone book. All right, here we go. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about Jacob last week, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother, oh, that's a woman, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of um, Yabadabadu. I don't know how to say this name. Abinadab, I, I can't get, I, my tongue doesn't work on this name. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, Salmon, one of those. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother, again, a woman, mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, to you and me, this is just a list of names. It's easy to zone out. As a matter of fact, it's okay. I bet some of you zoned out while I was reading that just then. But to the first century Jewish crowd, the first audience of Matthew's words here, this would have been compelling even stunning if this would have been read out loud there would have been <gasps> gasps from the crowd because they knew all these names they even knew how to pronounce them they knew all these names they knew all these stories they knew all these messes and knowing these stories helps us make sense of isaiah's words from hundreds of years before jesus that out of the stump of David's family would come a shoot. Well, what's he mean by stump? Let me show you. We don't have time to do a couple of these. Let me show you a couple of examples from this passage we just read. Did you know that two of Jesus' great-great-great-grandmothers were involved in prostitution? One of them was a prostitute. She was a foreigner and a woman. She checked all three of the boxes on the people you don't include in the family tree. Her name was Rahab. 
we'll have to tell her story another day. There's another one that's mentioned. I'll talk about her for just a second. Her name is Tamar. Tamar didn't intend on being a prostitute. She just found herself in a very desperate situation. She had been widowed at an early age. She had no children. As I said earlier, if you were a, a woman in this ancient culture, you were not connected to a man, to a husband, or you had, didn't have sons. You had no status. You had nothing. And so she's in a really, really hopeless situation in her life. So desperate times call for desperate measures. And she knew her father-in-law's weaknesses, so she dresses up and pretends to be a prostitute so that he will sleep with her. And she ends up getting pregnant by her father-in-law with twins. I don't know about your growing up experience in church. They didn't teach me this story in Sunday school. <laughs> this was not on the flannel graph. One of these twin boys that she had with her father-in-law was one of King David's ancestors, one of King David's great-great-grandfathers. And so this story becomes an example of God taking a very messy situation, a hopeless situation, a messy situation, and God said, no, 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 this is not the end for you. God says, watch me redeem this. Watch me use this. Watch me do something through this. Because that's what God does. Maybe you've found yourself in a messy situation. Maybe in your personal life, maybe in your marriage, maybe with your grown kids, maybe at work. Here, here's what I mean by messy situations. It's those situations you, you don't make small talk about. You don't post them on social media because you're afraid of what people would say or what people would think, and frankly, it's none of their business, but you think about it every day. And if we're honest, we, we've all found ourselves in this kind of messy situation. Just, it's embarrassing and messy, and maybe we didn't ask for it. Maybe it's something that somebody else did to us. It wasn't even our fault, but here we are, and we're stuck in the mess. And if that's the case, listen to me. If that's you today, God is closer to you than you think, and you are not damaged goods. And God is not ashamed. God says, listen, I, I did this once. I can do it again. I can take any situation and work through it. Out of the stump of David's family would grow a shoot. So let's skip ahead to King David for just a minute. The king who did not behave very kingly. I've said this about David before. David is, we, we hold him up as, as one of our biggest and brightest Bible heroes, but David was a hot mess. He was kind of a horrible guy. Awful awful to the women in his life as a husband horrible father to the point that he had to have one of his own sons murdered that's not going to get you the dad of the year coffee mug he was a horrible horrible guy matthew 1 6 from again from genealogy jesse was the father of king david david was the father of solomon solomon's mother was bathsheba the widow of uriah maybe you remember that story from sunday school david the king stays behind while the men go off to battle he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop of her house. Oh, the king likes what he sees. He wants her, so he takes her. She winds up pregnant, and in order to cover up his sin and his indiscretion, David brings her husband back from the war, says, hey, Uriah, you get a free weekend pass. Go spend some time with your wife. But Uriah, this husband, is a man of such character that he refuses to go home and to spend the weekend with his wife while his men are still at war. 
So David, in his frustration, sends Uriah back to the war, but, but assigns him to the front lines, all but ensuring that he will be killed. He basically murders Bathsheba's husband so he could have Bathsheba for himself. And he does so without any sort of guilt, no remorse, just figures, I'm above it all, I'll do what I want. Just kills this guy, takes his wife into his own house. But God's not going to let him get away with it. And God uses one of David's dearest friends, a guy by the name of Nathan, to confront David and his sin. And eventually David is, eventually, <laughs> David is torn up with guilt about what he's done, and he feels shame. I figure most of us know what that's like. Where we feel guilt, shame, hopelessness. Where we feel like a, a stump. Where we wonder, what in the world could God do through me? Or what in the world could God even do with me now? I don't know how God could take somebody as messy and as broken and as imperfect in me. And that's the reminder from David's story that Matthew gives us here. That God still uses David, even in the midst of his shame and brokenness and sin. All of these stories in Matthew 1 of David's ancestors, there were challenges to relationships, there were unmet expectations. There was hopelessness. It's all there. Hundreds of years before the Messiah would be born, it looked like all of Jesus' ancestors were going to just mess the whole thing up. It looked as dead and as hopeless as a stump. And yet Isaiah says, out of the stump of David's family grows a shoot. And that shoot has a name. And his name is Jesus. The child that would be born that, to, to a bewildered couple on that Bethlehem night. Isaiah is saying that out of, out of all the challenging and messy relationships and all the unmet expectations and all of the hopelessness, the utter hopelessness of sin, there would come a Savior. I said this last week. I think it's, it's the lesson from Matthew 1. That Jesus came from imperfect people because Jesus came for imperfect people like me and like you. So that he might continue to work through imperfect people. That's the message of Christmas. That God specializes in taking things that seem broken and dead and hopeless and breathes new life into them. Christmas is all about light invading dark spaces. Christmas is all about hope invading the hopelessness of the world. Christmas is all about God doing unexpected things at unexpected times with unexpected people. So listen to me. God is not stumped by your sin. God is not stumped by your situation. God is not stumped by the relationship challenges in your life. God is not stumped by what you feel is hopeless. God saw it coming. He anticipated it long, long, long ago, and he provided an answer, and that answer's name is Jesus. A shoot of new life springs up out of, we, out of what we thought was a stump. 
bow your heads with me. I want to take just a few moments. I'm going to lead you in a time of prayer. I'm going to let you start the prayer. I'll finish in a minute. Just a few moments for you to silently just come before God right now. And would you just open yourself up for a moment or two? Maybe, maybe you don't even believe in God. Or maybe you're not sure where you stand with God. Or maybe it's just been a really long time since you've talked to God. Will you just approach God right now in, in a moment of prayer? Just pray this prayer. God, God, if any of this is true, if any of this is real, would you make it real to me today? God, if, if any of this is true, if any of this is real, would you meet me in my mess today? Would you meet me in my stump of a situation? God, if any of this is real, would you make it real to me today? And let's just see what God might do. That's what he does. Father, we come to you right now and I pray that today someone would find hope. That today someone who walked in here or someone who's tuned into this broadcast, someone who woke up this morning in darkness that, that a light would flip on in their lives today. Somebody who began today feeling hopeless would find hope. God, thank you for all these names in Matthew chapter 1. Thank you for all the stories behind all these names because it gives me hope that if you could work through them, you can work through anything. That there isn't anybody exempt from your grace. There isn't anybody too far gone. There isn't anybody too broken. There isn't anybody too hopeless. For what you do, God, would you, would you do it again? and again and again. Christmas isn't a story, it's a promise. And we hold on to that promise and we thank you for it in the name of Jesus.